0: Five, four,
1: three, two, one. And cue them open the mic. Hi, this is Suze, Professor of Journalism and Faculty Advisor to Kent Wire. Welcome to Around the Sphere.
0: Welcome to Around the Sphere, the podcast of the School of Media and Journalism at Kent State University, produced and recorded by MDJ's students, faculty, and staff just for you. What's up? This is Mars Anderson, General Manager of Black Score Radio here on the Kent State campus. Black Score Radio is the student run internet station here, streaming from 11 a.m. to 2 a.m. with all student air programming. We do a little bit of music, a little bit of sports, a little bit of talk, even podcasting, and so much more. If you're looking to get involved, you can visit blackscoreradio.com. Also, you can follow us at BSR Kent on Twitter, Black Squirrel Radio on Instagram and Facebook, or send us an email at blacksquirrelradio.ksu at gmail.com. Look forward to seeing you.
2: Hello, and welcome back to Around the Sphere. My name is Kelsey Paulus. I am a senior journalism student at Kent State University. And today I am here with Rachel Dissol. Rachel graduated from Kent State in 2001 and has since done really impactful and moving investigative journalism in the Cleveland area. She's here with us today to talk about her work. Hello, Rachel. How are you today? I'm great. It's nice to meet you, Kelsey. Yes, nice to meet you. I'm really excited to talk about your work. I was kind of going through bits and pieces of it, and I'm really interested to learn about what you've been doing since you graduated. But I kind of wanted to start from when you graduated and your time at Kent State. So can you tell me a little bit about what you did during your time there? Like were you involved with student media? What was your time at Kent State kind of like?
1: Sure. During my time at Kent State, I, on some good advice, got involved in student media right away and worked for the daily Kent Stater pretty much throughout the time that I was attending Kent State. And it was probably the space in which I learned the most and got to try out the most skills and maybe make all my mistakes. <laughs> well, at least most of my mistakes then, but it was really an important part of, for me of starting a journalism career, You know, along with some important classes and some good professors. It was that kind of try it out atmosphere That really gave me confidence once I graduated to to go
2: out and commit acts of journalism. So how did you get into journalism? Did it start when you attended Kent State, or did you have prior experience before that?
1: Yeah, so I actually started doing some journalism in high school. I went to Lakewood High and graduated from there, and it had kind of a, a storied student newspaper, the Lakewood High Times. And I actually got involved. A teacher kind of pushed me to come to a meeting and to write a story and enticed me with a button that said question authority. That teacher spot on recognized my mindset that I wanted to be someone that could challenge folks. Um, I probably challenged that teacher quite a bit, and that's how they recognized that. And for me, kind of starting out, it was very much that, like, you know, I'm going to go, you know, ask people who have power questions. And then, of course, you learn as you go that there's a lot of responsibility and other stuff that comes with that. But that, that same teacher, uh, John Bowen, his wife, Candace, works at, at Kent State, and they helped me apply for college, um, really pushed me to put in an application, I think even helped me pay for the application. So if not for them, I probably wouldn't have taken that next step. So lots of gratitude there for mentors and people who push and
2: support. What did you dive into right after you graduated?
1: Yeah. So as soon as I left Kent State, I actually went to work for a small paper in Virginia called the Harrisonburg Daily News Record. And so that was my first job out of college. And I did that for about a year. It was a very small town, a very small family owned paper, And I covered, first I covered some outlying counties in Virginia, and then I covered crime and courts. So it was a really good kind of ground to try out some of the skills that I learned at Kent State. It was a very different atmosphere and environment than I had been in. Harrisonburg is actually also a college town, but it's in a part of Virginia that was very conservative. And so for me, it was kind of stepping into quite... A different environment and learning how to navigate relationships and, and politics and things like that in a really different way. So it was a really great place to learn. And then I was able to, to get a job at the Plain Dealer in my second year. And I had interned at the paper. And at the time that my internship ended, they weren't really hiring anybody. But the editor, Doug Clifton, uh, was interested in me coming back because of actually a Kent State related uh, incident, I would say. So I was a a reporter as an intern for the Plain Dealer. And when my internship ended, I I came back and was doing stuff at Kent State. And I ended up freelancing a story where I was supposed to cover some of the um, activities at the end of the school year, which sometimes turned into riotous activities at that time. I don't know what it's like now, but it was kind of like a you never knew it was going to jump off. And in covering that activity with one of the plane dealer photographers, Gus Chan, we got arrested (laughs) and yeah, we got hauled off in some police cars and put on a bus and everything. And when I got to the police station, I interviewed everybody else that was arrested. and took some notes for some reason I still had a notebook with me like they put handcuffs on me but they didn't take my notebook away and so once the handcuffs were kind of in the front I just kind of started interviewing people that had been arrested and then I used my one phone call and I was like don't I get one phone call right and I called the city desk at the plane dealer and they were like oh my gosh like what happened I'm like stop stop talking let me just read you these quotes And I started reading them the quotes um, from the folks that had gotten arrested, hoping that they could make it into the next edition of the paper. And so Doug Clifton, who was the editor at the time, thought that was a pretty good move. (laughs) I think he liked that kind of style. I don't know really the wisdom of it now, looking back, but it seemed like the thing to do in the moment. So that I think helped me uh, get a job out of school. And you worked there for 18 years, right? Yeah, probably a little more than that. After being an intern, I left for a year and then I came back in 2002 and I worked there until April of 2020. So it was quite a long time in one
2: place. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your time there? I'm going to like ask about a few of the like specific series that you worked on, but just like a general overview, I guess.
1: Yeah. So it was a really big
2: newsroom when I started you know,
1: hundreds of reporters and, and staff members and journalists. And throughout my time there, you know, the Plain Dealer had, ex- it, it, the Plain Dealer was experiencing what many newsrooms were, which was really kind of shrinking and trying to find a way to, to support, you know, the work of reporters. I was able to start out in one of the bureaus in Lorain County and also work a little bit in Medina County before I came down town to the main offices. And I worked covering first all of the suburban police departments. So myself and another reporter, Damian Guevara, were in charge of, I think, 56 police departments, wow. <laughs> which seemed like a lot. And we took it really seriously, though. We went and visited each one in person and, and introduced ourselves to each you know, police chief and each police chief's secretary in person so that we could have kind of better relationships. You know, it was during that time that I kind of started to form like an idea of how I wanted to do the job, um, kind of building upon what I learned in school with like the basic skills. And that was really in telling the folks that we covered that you're never going to see a story about you in the paper without talking to us first. You know, we're going to be very transparent and bring information to you and let you know what we're doing. And so we were able to do a lot of reporting on that. And then I kind of built on that niche of, of covering criminal justice stories, but maybe doing it in a different way. You know, of course, there was the the drumbeat of, you know, crimes and other things, but I was always more interested in the aftermath. And also maybe in like the systems that were around criminal justice
2: instead of just the crime itself. Well, then I guess we can talk a little bit about some of the series that you had worked on. So can you tell me um, what was the first one that you worked on? So actually the first,
1: well, the first series I was actually able to be part of was a series on juvenile justice. And for that series, myself and photographer Dale Omori followed around um, a kid who was 11 turning 12 and it was his first time in the juvenile justice system. And the idea was really to explore what could be done to help kids that were struggling like that what resources there were and which there weren't and then after that the the first really truly all on my own kind of i had the idea and worked on it from start to finish series was called um, joanna facing forward and it was a story about a high school senior who was sexually assaulted by her ex-boyfriend And when she reported that sexual assault, he was arrested, but he was let out of juvenile detention with an ankle monitor. And he came back and he waited for her in her driveway and he shot her in in her face. And so the series was about about Joanna in the time from her recovery and leading up to when there was supposed to be a trial on the case. And it was really um, my first experience in covering very much up close for an extended period of time, a significant trauma like that. I had covered quite a few uh, murders and other things like that, but it was always something that I would cover and then you know we'd, we'd just kind of look at the lens of the justice process, you know what was happening. And for this story, we really wanted to go deeper and look into how the community was treating teen dating violence. You know, um, it seemed to us just from her family and talking to them initially that they didn't feel like it was taken seriously. So that was kind of how we started. And for me, it was really daunting because I wanted to both be able to tell her story with her in a way that would help the community. But I also didn't want it to cause her harm because she was, you know, a very young person And she was very, you know, very, very physically damaged and also, you know, mentally was grappling with so much, you know, the attention about what happened, you know, her family's reaction, there was just so much going on. So it was the first time I really had to stop and think through and make a plan of when you're going to tell a narrative story like this, what are you trying to achieve and what are your responsibilities and what are your responsibilities to the people who, engage with you and allow you to tell these stories. Because without the cooperation of, of folks who allow us to tell their stories, we're not able to do this, right? And so I was able to talk to some therapists who had expertise in trauma. And then I found the DART Center. And the DART Center kind of specializes in journalism and trauma. It was a resource that I didn't know existed before. And it was also a resource that kind of opened my eyes because the whole time I was in college learning about the nuts and bolts of journalism, no one ever really talked to us about how do we interview people who have had a significant trauma? How do we make ethical decisions about how to, what to put in a story and what not to, you know, things like that, you know, how much do we, how much power do we give people who are the subjects of the story, right? And so those were things that, that I really had to grapple with for the first time but I felt that that was a really worthy and important space and was able to like help me think differently about how, how we cover stuff like that. Not just only through the perspective of the criminal
2: justice system. How did this, I guess, like your first experience, how did this experience like reporting on trauma and working with people who have been like majorly hurt, how did this shape future projects that you continue to work on centered around sort of the same or similar issues.
1: Yeah, it it actually just really made me want to learn more and be able to do it the right way. Because what I saw was this kind of two-dimensional or like binary thing where it was like, perpetrators, bad, justice system, good, you know, and there was so much in the middle. I often found that parts of the criminal justice system and the way that we handle crimes and cases seemed to be really harmful and detrimental to the folks that it was trying to help, you know, as well as defendants as well. You know, that's another another side of it. But, and I kind of felt like a lot of the work we were doing around the justice system wasn't telling the whole story. It was only telling it through the lens of you have an arrest and then you have an indictment and then you have a trial and someone's guilty and then they get sentenced and then everything's better. And what I was hearing from folks and the community that when I covered crime was like that wasn't really the case for them. You know, they, they often felt like, gosh, should I even have gone through all that? Like it was very hard. Um, They didn't feel satisfied or cared for or supported in the system, even though it was kind of in essence about them, but it really wasn't. So it just made me want to figure out better ways to do that work and really explore like the other fields around trauma. So I tried to take a lot of classes and lessons around like the neurobiology of trauma. So like how trauma affects the brain and then really connecting that to like how we interview people. So one of my kind of aha moments after taking a a class on that was like as reporters, we wanna know everything chronologically, right? What happened and then what happened next and then what happened next. And we want all those facts to be precise and we want them to be in order because accuracy is really important to us. But for people who have gone through a significant trauma, the effect on their brain often puts those things out of order and makes them fuzzier and makes it hard to have that chronological timeline with those very precise facts so i realized that like what we were trying to do and what we were trying to do in reference to like victims or survivors it, it didn't really match up the way that it should and so the way we interviewed folks could maybe cause some additional trauma and not get to the best story so that maybe we as journalists needed to do more work to understand that so we could do a better job so i tried to learn a lot more about that and And then as I did, I tried to like share it, share it with other folks
2: and stuff like that. Another one of the series that I really wanted to talk about was reinvestigating rape because it led to testing of a ton of different rape kits and kind of looked at serial rape in Ohio. And can you just tell me a little bit about that story and how you got involved? When did you report on it? Things like that. Yeah. So
1: in Cleveland, there was a pretty significant case where, you know, the bodies of 11 women were discovered buried kind of in and around the house and yard of a man named Anthony Soule. And myself and, and many reporters at the Plain Dealer covered that. And after kind of the initial, you know, police activity and arrests and learning about the case, myself and a reporter named Leila Atassi, um, who I worked with and and, and have and had not have a ton of respect for. We were really more interested in like the system and how the system seemed to let different allegations kind of pile up and different reports pile up. And we just weren't really satisfied with what, you know, police were saying in terms of their response. You know, there was one particular press conference where, you know, someone asked the police, like, well, why didn't you, you know, do something about this or wouldn't, and their kind of response was like, well, like the families didn't report all these folks missing, you know, and the families were like, we tried to come to the police department. We tried to make police reports, but police dissuaded us and said like, you know, oh, she's a drug addict or, oh, she'll come back. And so we felt like there was probably these deeper things that needed to be explored, especially when it came to sexual assault. And we were really looking at the investigations themselves initially, you know, the judgments police were making and whether to move forward or not, whether, you know, they were discounting a multitude of cases from women who either had a mental health issue or a drug addiction. And we kind of stumbled upon the rape kit thing, because in a lot of these investigations, it would be mentioned whether a rape kit was collected or not. And often there was not a mention of what the results of that were. So we kind of just as one of the many, many things we were doing, put in some public records requests to try to figure out like in total, you know, how many rape kits had the Cleveland police collected and how many of those had been tested. And it seemed like such a simple question when it was really difficult to get an answer you know, the police started telling us, well, we don't know how many we have and we've never counted them and we don't know how many are tested and we test them when they need to get tested. And the state has told us we can't test all of them. You know, so we started to get these answers that really piqued our interest in terms of like, what should we, be, what should we really be focusing on here? And around the same time, there was a human rights watch report out of um, Los Angeles that kind of looked at the same issue that was kind of sparked by nurses in Los Angeles County saying like, we're performing all these rape kits and we almost never get called to court to testify. Like, why are we doing this? Why are we telling you know patients that we're collecting evidence from their body if we're not gonna do anything with it? Is that causing more trauma? So just kind of hearing that conversation, we decided to go deeper. It was sure a, a journey to just get the information <laughs> to like just well over a year to start getting the actual information. I think our inquiries prompted the police to start counting the rape kits, but they were actually using overtime. And so it'd be like one guy had like, you know, six hours of overtime. And so we'd like spend time that week counting the kits and cataloging them. You know, it wasn't a lot of urgency to it, except for the fact that we kept emailing them and calling them like every other week being like, where are you at? What's going on? Eventually that kind of filtered up to the state. Some of the stories that we were doing and some of the questions we were asking, Mike DeWine, who became governor and you know still governor right now, just decided to issue an open call to all police departments in the state and say, anyone who has untested rape kits, you can send them to be tested, which was pretty significant. He didn't know how many there would be. We didn't know how many there would be but by the end of that period in which he had issued the open call for it, it was completely voluntary. Couldn't force people to send them at that point. Now it's mandatory um, and in large part, I think based on some of the reporting, but it was like more than 14,000. So it just, the more we asked questions, the more we kind of looked into the reasoning behind this, I think the more significant the story became. And at the same time, other places around the country also started to, to do the same thing, you know? So we saw in other states the kind of, the, some, some of it based on reporting, some of it based on advocacy. Luckily, there was more support in Ohio and in Cleveland than other places, but through the testing of the kits, we were able to start to really learn a lot more about the patterns of serial rapists than we had ever known before. And the other thing that we learned that, that was that testing rape kits was just the first step. Like this is like the basic, the thing you should absolutely do. But if you tested them and you didn't follow up with investigation, that wasn't really fair and that wasn't really helpful. So we kind of had to move into this like next phase where we focused on like, is there enough resources? Are there being investigated? How do we treat victims or survivors if we're knocking on their door 20 years later and saying, yeah, we didn't really care about your case then but we'd like to open this up for you again now, you know? So there's a lot of facets and nuance to those stories. And I think in total, it's, this is kind of not the norm. I think a lot of reporters report on something and then kind of move on, right? But I, I, I spent more than a, a decade writing stories about this in some form or another from the testing to the research to the prosecution, pretty much up
2: until um, I left the Play dealer. How did your experience with this series also help with another series you completed, the case closed one? I know you like looked into like systemic failures within Cleveland policing. And I believe you followed a woman who had to solve her own rape because of the lack of effort in wanting to solve her case. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I
1: think with case closed, it was a story that I wasn't really sure if we would be able to do. We had so few resources at that point at the paper, and there was so much work to be done. But when Sandy contacted me and was so frustrated, it just kind of sparked that Outrage that, you know, all this reporting had been done. Yet, even after that, there was still this woman who the very basic investigation hadn't been done in her rape. There still weren't enough resources in the sex crimes unit. And at first, I don't think we planned on doing a story. I think what we told Sandy was that we would look into it, we'd make some phone calls, we'd try to get her some answers because not every time someone calls a reporter, you know, is it going to end up being a story? I think as journalists, we can be helpful and we can tend to our mission of accountability sometimes just by asking questions and then sometimes people react with us out with us not having to write a story which is the much harder thing to do but once we did we just kind of kept peeling back more and more things like we couldn't really understand um, why some super simple things hadn't been done in her case And also the fact that that she really had to do the job of the system while while fighting the system, while also being really scared about about what this person had done to her and finding out that the person had done it to someone else after she had made her report that wasn't thoroughly investigated. It just got to the point where we sat down and talked to her and said, you know, this, this story is definitely about you and what you've done and, you know, this thing that you're going through, but it's also about this larger thing and seeing if she really felt comfortable with that, you know, with it being both. And um, it was a really slow process to work through it. And, you know, in the midst of us doing the reporting, um, the person did get indicted. And so then we were in a court process. Um, so it took quite a while. But I think in the end, we were able to really show what that experience in the system was like very clearly through the lens of this one person. And we tried to be cautious and say, like, this isn't, you know, this isn't everyone's experience, but it is a lot of people's experience. And when it does happen, um, you know, from her perspective, the system caused her as much harm as the perpetrator did in a way, and also prevented her from starting to heal because it was just unthinkable to her that, and and she, you know, she grew up in the country and then in the suburb, she's white. She very much trusted police, even though she did struggle, you know, with like a drug addiction for some time. She just couldn't believe that with a very credible report about a very violent thing that, that basic things weren't done, like phone calls made to interview people. I think in the end, you know, I can think of, I can always think of things that we would have done differently or whatever, but I think sticking closely to kind of her lens and her experience and really centering kind of what that trauma can be like, but also taking real care in the story to show what resilience looks like. So we talk a lot about resilience when we talk about trauma. And I think in news we kind of default to like resilience being like, you were homeless as a kid and now you go to Harvard. Like it's gotta be this like giant leap to prove your resilience. Like these un- like thinkable stories that make us all feel good. But resilience really, when it comes to like crime and everyday life is you manage to get through it and you're living your life every day and you still have tough moments, but you also have joy. Um, You also are able to reclaim parts of yourself. And so I think showing that up close really became part of the purpose of what we were doing and showing it for what it is, that it's not a straight line that, you know, your perpetrator doesn't get sent to prison and there's like a balloon release in your life is therefore better moving forward that you still can continue to struggle with the effects of what happened. I think that really became part of the purpose of that story. And it wasn't the way that we planned it when we started, which many of these stories don't end up the way that you think they might when you first start working on them. And I think that's a good thing because usually the folks who allow you to tell them learn a lot and gain a lot from
2: that. And and so do the reporters and then the community does as well. And I know that you mentioned DART earlier and you won an award the dart award for excellence of coverage in trauma or in coverage of trauma in 2020 for case Close, and again for johanna in 2008 can you just tell me a little bit about that
1: yeah so i'm definitely not a person that's very much like awards they're the best and most important thing but i do think that recognition of when we treat people well and, and take into account what it takes to tell these difficult stories and that we honor when people really push to do it well in service to the community that that's important. And so for me finding kind of that dart community and there's like a whole community of reporters that have kind of either had a workshop with dart or a training or been part of the dart awards who kind of form that support network both of you know recognizing the difficulty and the toll of the work but also really, really pushing and striving to do a better job in the way that we tell stories, whether it's in a conflict zone or in a city like Cleveland to really push ourselves and push others to say like, what is this about? You know, what what is telling these stories about and how do we do it with care? How do we do it in a way that helps the community learn about trauma and resilience and isn't sensational, you know, or, you know, that, Clickbait territory where we're just kind of wallowing in the bad things that have happened to people without being really constructive. So I just really have appreciated that about that community and those goals and, and I think that at least from my experience, the younger generation of emerging journalists because clearly I'm ancient now. I'm on a podcast and you know haven't been at Kent State since <laughs> 2001 except to visit. I think that the younger journalists that I've worked with, they really grasp how important that is so much more than maybe folks when I was in school. You know, when I was in school, it was kind of more about that hard hitting, hard charging, we're gonna investigate this and do that. And I love that. But the students that I've been working with more recently, um, whether it's doing like seminars or lectures or teaching, or just people who reach out for help with stories, they, they really wanna make that part of what they do they understand. And I don't know whether it's the, just being raised slightly differently in a different world or like seeing things discussed more, whether it's on social media or something, but a lot of the students really seem to say, I wanna be equipped with these skills to really take care and treat people well and also still tell these stories really well in a way that is useful and makes things better and not just kind of like lingers at the worst moments of people's lives.
0: Kimmy, you probably know this, but our students are amazing. They continuously shock me with their creativity, drive, and ability to handle work, school, and you know, extra projects like this. So one of my favorite parts about being a professor is keeping in touch with students after they graduate and following their careers.
1: As a soon to be alum, I want to be able to keep up with what's happening within MDJ and how our students continue to break barriers, as well as what my fellow alum accomplish after we all part ways.
0: Well, then buckle up because I have good news for you. MDJ releases a monthly digital newsletter called Jargon that contains updates from around the school and highlights from our global network of outstanding alumni.
2: So I never have to feel disconnected from MDJ?
0: Nope, no matter where you land.
2: Where do I sign up?
0: Well, it's even easier than that. Just visit kent.edu MDJ jargon for monthly email updates about all things MDJ.
1: We'll put the link in the show notes to make it even easier.
0: Well, that's all we have for you today. Wouldn't it be nice to get some audio or email comments from our listeners? It really would. Well, I've got one. I really loved hearing that last episode. It was fun to hear Nick, our production manager for the podcast, step in front of the microphone and interview professors Knobloch and White. That was a fun episode.
1: It sure was. That was one of my favorite episodes. If you haven't listened to it yet, it is not too late.
0: That's right. That's the beauty of podcasts.
1: Thanks for listening. Subscribe to get all of the episodes,
2: and we'll be back soon with some more great MDJ content.
1: Bye. All right. We'll
0: see you. You've been listening to Around the Sphere. Please send us your thoughts, comments, and feedback at mdjpodcast at kent.edu. Music for this podcast was written and produced by Assistant Professor Scott Holgren. This episode was produced by Nicholas Underwood, Digital Media Production major, and our podcast project manager is Kimmy Daniels, Public Relations major. This podcast was advised by MDJ Director Emily Metzger. Special thanks to all the students, faculty, and staff who made this episode possible, and a very special thanks to you for listening. We'll see and hear you around the sphere.